you turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 21. First Samuel twenty-one. Our sermon text today spans all of chapters twenty-one and twenty-two, uh, but for the sake of time, we'll just read the first seven verses of chapter twenty-one to kind of get us into the passage. So 1 Samuel chapter 21, let's begin reading in verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread at hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today would their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, this morning, we want to lift up your name. We want to magnify I am together. Father, I pray that as we dive into this text and see what you are like, see your character on display, your faithfulness and your commitment to your anointed king, your desire to fulfill your promises and your strength in uh, bringing that about, your righteousness, your judgment, your goodness. I pray that you would clear away all the things that would distract us from focusing on your beauty and glory and goodness. Father, we know that our enemy schemes and plots and he would desire nothing less than that we would forget about what we are doing today and just focus on the next thing. And, and so, Father, we pray that you would protect us from his schemes and his devices and his minions, which scour the earth and try to look for weak members of the flock that they can pick off. And Father, I pray that you would protect those in this room and those hearing my voice and uh, enable us to hear from our hearts and to, to truly trust in who you are and obey the commands that you give us. And Father, we pray the same thing for 
all believers uh, throughout our region, Father, especially as we prepare this afternoon to gather as a Baptist association for our annual meeting. Uh, We pray for the uh, dozens of churches within our association meeting right now throughout our county, Uh, some struggling with uh, trials because of grief and loss in the church, some struggling because they're looking for a new leader, some struggling because of lack of finances, some just fighting the fight of faith and trying to be faithful. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them and that you would pour out your spirit and that they would experience your power today. Lord, I pray we haven't even scratched the surface of really ministering to our our community. Lord, the thousands who live just right within walking distance, driving distance of where we live. And so, Father, I pray that you would raise us up to meet these needs and that you, would, that you would use us to glorify your name, not only among the people here today, but among many thousands more. Father, please open your word, uh, cause us to be faithful today, and to see your faithfulness and your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly after Mandy and I got married, a friend of mine got us hooked on what we felt at the time was one of the greatest TV series ever to exist. An action thriller called 24. Uh, There was nothing like going to our mailbox and finding a fresh stack of blockbuster total access DVDs containing the next four episodes, popping in a tombstone pizza, putting off all the homework that I had to do until four o'clock in the morning the next day, while we glued our eyes to the TV and followed special forces veteran turned counterterrorism expert Jack Bauer do the impossible on the day of the California presidential primary. Now, the whole idea of the show, and by the way, uh, I'm not endorsing this show. It's been a long, long time since I've seen it, so please understand that. But the whole point of the show was that the entire series took place over the course of a single 24-hour period of time. Bauer and his CTU colleagues, the ones who weren't sleeper agents for the enemy, that is, defuse bombs, track down kidnappers, escape death, and generally speaking, rescued the United States from certain disaster all through 24 action-packed impossible hours. Now, Mandy and I... I, I I only remember watching the first season. I don't think we watched any of the subsequent seasons. Uh, I guess we can only handle so much suspense. But the show was popular enough to run for more than 10 years subsequent, each year more impossibly intense than the last. At a certain point, as these things go, critics began to complain about the lack of realism in the show. How is any of this possible? I mean, is Jack Bauer really the only person out of 300 million Americans who can save the day? Is that realistic? Can a human man really survive all this? Why is it that so many action heroes are named Jack? Finally, somebody pointed out that in each 24-hour series, Bauer never once even stops to use the the men's room. How is this possible? In the next several chapters of our text, God's anointed king, David, is going to face a rapid succession of 24-like circumstances. He's on the run. His family is in danger. 
He's cut off from his friends. The entire country is on the brink of disaster. And David is the only person keeping the crazed King Saul from driving the whole nation over a cliff. I mean, this is just the most impossible of circumstances. But there's one problem. David is a real human man. Not a made-up, superhuman Jack Bauer. He, he doesn't run a state-of-the-art counterterrorism unit. He isn't a special agent who can do impossible things. He's a man. Now, that's not to put David down. I think in a head-to-head fight between David and Kiefer Sutherland, David would probably win. But what I mean to say is that while David was a real human being with real human limitations, he found himself, in, in, this, in these two chapters, he finds himself in, in real circumstances that very quickly grow beyond his human abilities. Like without a mighty, benevolent, sovereign protector, David would be toast. And that's why I think our focus today needs to be on the one person who protects and guides and provides for David throughout the entirety of his his exile. This is a passage, folks, that puts God's promises to the test. We're meant to ask essentially two questions. First of all, is God really right? Is he just to take the kingdom away from King Saul, an imperfect man, and give it to somebody else who himself is not perfect either? And secondly, is God really able to fulfill his promise to David given the insurmountable obstacles? Like, is God smart enough to to help David navigate through these difficulties? Is God strong enough to protect him from a mighty king? And what we're going to see is that when evil is on the loose, when circumstances are out of control, when difficulties pile up, no matter what, the Lord is steadfast. The Lord is solid and faithful and firm and committed to his promises. He can be trusted. He's strong like a mighty rock. He's good like a generous and caring father. He's reliable. He is steadfast. And this morning, we're going to follow David through four specific circumstances in which we see the steadfastness of the Lord in every one. First of all, notice with me from verses 1 through 9 that the Lord is steadfast when David is desperate. The Lord is steadfast when David is desperate. I can't think of a more desperate situation than the one in which David finds himself here in the beginning of chapter 21. I mean, think about it. Think of how we got to this point. David was personally attacked by King Saul twice. He Uh, Saul's henchmen lay in wait for him outside of his own home. They chased him to the home of Samuel and the prophets. And Samuel and the prophets, he, he escaped by the skin of his teeth and by the power of the Spirit of God. But he wasn't guaranteed permanent safety there. So he runs back to Jonathan, the king's son. Jonathan confirms his worst fears. And so he's completely alone. And there's only one group of people who apparently haven't gotten the memo that David is an enemy of the state, the priests. So this is the last group of people that he can rely on before he has to go out and, and he's you know, on the lamb, so to speak. So he travels a mile or so to the north to the priests, and he tells the chief priest, Ahimelech, a story that, quite frankly, isn't very plausible. Uh, Saul sent me on a secret mission. It's so secret that nobody else knows about it, and it's so important and so urgent that I didn't even have time to pack my weapons or my armor. Okay. 
So he has a, he's alone. He has nothing. He's not even got anything to eat. And to make matters worse, the only thing that the priests happen to have on hand is the bread of the presence. Now this, uh, not to get into too much detail, this is bread that uh, the priest would make about once a week, uh, every week, and they would lay it out before the Lord in the tabernacle, and then it was removed uh, and, and replaced with fresh bread, and that week-old bread was then consumed by the priest's families. That's who it was for. And that's the only food that's available to David at all. So between the awkward and unlikely cover story and the fact that he has no food, he's really, and he's really not even qualified to eat this bread, technically, David is as undeserving of special treatment as anybody. He is pathetic. In fact, his only qualification to receive any help from God at all is that he is desperate. And apparently that's exactly where God wants him to be. Because it's when we're desperate, not when we're deserving, that the steadfastness of the Lord shines through. David didn't bring it about. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't figure it out. He just had a need, and God met the need. He shows up with nothing. He leaves with a full belly and a strong sword strapped to his back. The steadfastness of the Lord appears when David is desperate. For some reason, Christians like you and me, we've gotten it into our minds that the promises of God's provision and God's protection over us are for times when things are a little bit bad, but not too bad. Like we've got it into our brains and into our hearts that, that God's promises were given for the times when, when things are just sort of not okay, not when they're really, really not okay. Sometimes people say things to me like, uh, you know, when things settle down a bit for me, then I'll come back to church. Or when I dig myself out of the hole that I've got myself into, then I'll seek the things of the Lord. Maybe you've said this. Hey, when I get caught up on these bills... That's why I'm working so many hours and I can't participate in the life of the church. Or that's why I can't give financially the way that the Holy Spirit is convicting me to give because I'm in a really desperate circumstance and, and it's a little bit above the pay grade of the Lord. What are we saying? We're saying that God is nice to have in our life, but when we're really desperate, when we really need something, we need to rely on something a little more real than him. But friend, let me tell you something. The times when you cannot pay the bills, the times when you have a real problem, the times when you're underwater, the times when you are in the pit, the times when you are desperate and you know you don't deserve the help, the times when you have put yourself in the situation in which you find yourself, those are the very times when you need the Lord the most. And those are the times when his faithfulness and his steadfastness are going to shine the most brightly. Say, well, I don't deserve any blessing. I, I did this to myself. I did this to me, and I'm going to be the one that, that works my way out of it. That's not the requirement for receiving help from the Lord. The requirement is simply, I need help. By the way, that's true of you this morning if you're not a Christian. Like, if, you're not, if you don't have a real relationship in your heart with the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the situation that you're in. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, this is what he says about you. He says that you are separated from Christ, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
In other words, there are those of you who are listening to me today who are as far away from God as you can possibly be. You are living in rebellion. You are enslaved to sick and addictive sins. You are resisting the warning of the Bible. You're resisting the convicting urgings of the Holy Spirit. And you are as far from God as you can possibly be. And you are in desperate straits. You're hopeless. And folks, when God begins to show you what's really going on, what you need to understand is that he is steadfast even though you know that you are not. And he offers this salvation to you. When God begins to show you your sin, your desperation, you need to know that God is steadfast. He's true to his word. He makes promises and he keeps them and he promises today This is a promise, guys. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. Whoever confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Rescued. God will keep his promise. The Lord is steadfast when David is in desperation. But secondly, notice with me that the Lord is steadfast when David is in danger. When David is in danger, in verses 10 through 15 of chapter 21, we learn that David, uh, almost inexplicably, after interacting with Ahimelech the priest, he gathers up the rest of the bread, I guess, and, and the sword that he's been given from the priest, which is actually Goliath's sword, the giant that David had killed years before. And inexplicably, he leaves Israel and he heads for Gath. Do you remember where Gath is? Gath is one of the big cities in Philistia. This is where Goliath was from. And so here's David. He's bringing Goliath's sword to Gath, Goliath's hometown. I'm not sure what he was thinking. Maybe he thought that he could remain anonymous. Maybe he thought that Achish, the king of Gath, would be impressed somehow that he had influence over Saul's chief rival. I'm not sure. But either way, David gets into Gath and immediately the noblemen of Achish's court see right through it. They warn the king. And notice what they call David in verse 10. Do you see verse 10? They say, is not this David the king of the land? It's ironic how often in 1 Samuel the wicked speak more truth than they know. But these people recognize just who David is and they warn Achish, a man who could very easily have David overpowered and arrested and tortured and killed. And so David takes all this to heart, and in a moment of extreme danger and overwhelming fear, he, he has nothing left to do, but he actually pretends to have lost his mind, and he's sitting there in the gate of the city, and he's scratching on the wood of the door, and he's letting the drool drip down his beard. You know, on one level, there are numerous points of contrast between David and Saul in these chapters. This is one of them. Uh, Saul has no idea what's going on, and David is able to inquire of the Lord. Saul's own kinsmen aren't supporting him, and David is being supported uh, even by, he's even being recognized by the, the, the enemies of the Lord. Here's another point of contrast, though. David is faking being mad and crazy. Saul is really losing his mind. But on another level, consider how humbling this experience must have been for David. He's been desperate, he's been destitute, he's been in danger, and he's forced to lose all of his dignity in order to avoid certain death. In order to understand what was going on in David's mind at this time, we have to look at the psalm that he composed uh, during this event in his life, Psalm 56. 
We don't necessarily have to turn there. But in Psalm 56, he complains to the Lord about the way in which evil men were trampling on him. They were lurking. They were licking their chops in order to destroy him. But in spite of all that danger, he is confident in the Lord. Here's what he says. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This I know, that God is for me. Like, just listen to the closeness that David experiences in his relationship with the Lord. All of, your, all of my tears are in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Do you hear the confidence? Imagine yourself lying there in the streets of a foreign city. You can't go home because that's certain death. You have nowhere to go. You can't see your wife or your family. You see your enemies eyeing you suspiciously. You can't give up on the ruse for even a moment because if they sense that you are faking it, you're, you're done. And yet even when David is in mortal danger, the Lord is steadfast. The Lord's already promised that he's going to make David the next king and he's going to protect him in danger. When I am afraid, David says, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I can't tell you how many times I've repeated those words over and over in my mind in times of fear and anxiety and danger. I'm reminded in Psalm 56 that God meets us in real life, doesn't he, once again? Whether we're desperate or whether we're in danger, he doesn't just protect us from the little things. He protects us and provides for us when we're really deeply in need. David was dealing with a very legitimate fear in Gath. His life was in danger. Some of you deal with that too. You deal with fear, with anxiety, with dread of what's coming, with terror with real danger to yourself or to your family? How do you deal with that? Uh, and I recognize, by the way, that things like fear or anxiety or dread or terror, they're, they're very complicated features of who we are. They're expressions both of our spirit and of our body, and they're all tied up and tangled in there together. And, and the physical symptoms of fear are often unbearable. You can't sleep, you can't eat, you feel like your stomach is in your throat, you can't get your work done, your head is burning, and, and it's not wrong to try to seek relief from that. Like, if you have a headache and you go out and you get some Advil and you take some Advil, that's okay. But what often happens, folks, is that we say, essentially, this fear that I'm experiencing, this anxiety that I'm going through, this terror that I'm experiencing, this dread... This is too much for God, right? I've got to go after something that, something stronger, something more potent, something more in the moment. This isn't the kind of danger, this isn't the kind of fear that the Bible was meant to address. This isn't the kind of fear that God can help with. And even though Christians for thousands of years have found hope and healing in the pages of the Bible and in the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, we modern people say, that's not enough for me. And what happens is that in pursuit of relief, which is totally fine, we end up ignoring the very person who allowed that danger into my life in the first place so that he might display his glory and his power and his goodness 
and demonstrate to me and to all the people around me that he alone is my rock and my fortress and that he is going to be the one who protects me. Don't do that. Don't say, God, this is too much for you. Seek the Lord. If he's told you to do something, you obey what he's told you to do. Trust him. Trust his word. He's steadfast no matter what. He's steadfast when David is desperate. He's steadfast when David is in danger. And notice thirdly that the Lord is steadfast when David lacks direction. When David lacks direction. Uh, We see this in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. At his earliest opportunity... Uh, David, his plan to go find refuge in Gath, that didn't work out, so he leaves Gath, and he goes back to the foothills of Judah, and he reaches a cave called Adullam. We don't know exactly which cave this is, but there are some caves in the region that are quite large. Uh, I've never personally been there, but that's what I'm told. And so probably one of these caves, somehow his parents and the rest of his family find out where he is. Uh, They're his relatives, so they're in just as much danger from King Saul as he is in danger from King Saul. So they join him in the cave. At this point, a lot of people have learned that David is a fugitive. I'm sure the rumors are spreading. And so what happens is everybody who is in debt or in trouble, everybody who's discontented with the situation under Saul, they find out where David is and they seek him out. And he ends up amassing this this ragtag bunch of, of men who would benefit from a regime change, and it ends up being something like 400 men. So, you know, there's something about God's anointed king that just attracts people who are in that desperate situation, right? And so David is in this western wilderness of Judah, and then he decides to take this whole retinue of people east And he travels to the south of the Dead Sea and all the way up into Moab. By the way, uh, David's father, Jesse, his grandmother was a Moabite woman. Her name was Ruth, right? And so maybe this is David reaching out to a family member. But they're in Moab, and he leaves his father and his mother, who are quite old, in Moab. And then he travels back to uh, the the southern part of Judah and then north to a, a stronghold, which could be something like the the famous Masada. Uh, We don't really know exactly where it was. So my point is, David is sort of just wandering around, right? He's, He's lacking direction. He doesn't know where to go because he can't go back to where he used to live. And it's in this moment that God graciously sends a prophet by the name of Gad and tells him, David, I want you to go back to the land of Judah. Go back to your home country. So what's going on? In the midst of confusion... In the midst of doubt and a lack of direction, the Lord visits David and he reminds him of his steadfastness. He guides and directs him and tells him what to do and where to go. Here's the point. Confusion, lack of direction, uncertainty, they are all a normal part of life, aren't they? Like some of you right now are faced with that very thing. You're in a situation, you don't know what to do, you're confused, you don't have direction, But oftentimes when I hear Christians talk about the Lord, it's as if they believe he's hiding the path from them. Have you ever heard somebody talk like that? As if God is the one who is hiding from them, that only the smart people who can figure out spiritual things are going to 
find his secret will, and a normal person isn't able to do that, and they pay attention to the little signs and the sequences of words or the phrases and the, the formation of the clouds or whatever it is that happens that day, and only the really smart people can figure out what God is trying to communicate to them, as if God is hidden from us. And, and I want to say that's not how God is, folks. I, I know, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, I know a lot of you have made big life decisions on the basis of these sorts of signs. You, you prayed, you know, and, and you asked the Lord, should I date Frank, who has a mustache, or should I date Tom, who wears a ball cap all the time? And you say, amen, and then you look out your car window, and this guy walks past, and he's wearing a ball cap, and you think, uh-huh. <laughs> it's a sign from the Lord, right? All of that arises out of an assumption that God's ways are intentionally hidden from us and that is on us to figure out what God is trying to communicate. That's no different, by the way, from the way, the way of thinking of a pagan person. But God isn't like that towards you if you're his covenant child. He isn't playing hard to get. He promises us in the first chapter of the book of James, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives freely. Let him ask in faith. Like, are you coming to God confident, knowing that he is going to give you the wisdom that you need to make the decisions that you need to make? That he's going to guide you as his covenant son. I think this is so amazing that even before Christ comes, even before the Holy Spirit falls on the church in his fullness, King Solomon, centuries before, writing in the book of Proverbs, has this to say. He says, if you cry out for wisdom, if you seek for her, if you search for her like for hidden treasure, then you will find the knowledge of God. Like there's a promise from the very beginning that this is who God is. He is a God who lovingly, mercifully, graciously reveals his character and his will to us because he loves us, because he's steadfast no matter what. See, the problem that we have, it's, it's really, folks, it's not that God is hidden from us. It's that when he reveals something that he wants us to do in the pages of his word or through some other means, we hear what God has to say and we don't like what we hear. That's the real problem. In David's case, though, the guidance was to return to Judah, return to the place of danger and difficulty, face your fears, uh, walk through the valley. You know, maybe this morning you're in that state of confusion and, and difficulty and you lack direction and you're wondering, what does God want me to do? But the reason you lack that direction may be because you're assuming that he's going to lead you down a path of comfort and ease. And he may be leading you down a path of difficulty and doubt. Because God leads us through these things in order to increase our faith in him. When he does... We can know his guidance through trials is better than our own quick fixes. Remember Lot? What did Lot do in the book of Genesis? He looked out at all the different areas of the, the countryside, and, and Abram says, you, you can choose whichever one. And what does Lot do? He says, I, I'm going to choose the easy path. And what does it end up in his life? What ends up in his life? Misery and death. Abram had faith and found the Lord to be his steadfast covenant God, even though it was not the easy choice. The Lord is steadfast no matter what. He's steadfast when David is desperate. He's steadfast when David is in danger. He's steadfast when David lacks direction. 
And then fourthly, the Lord we see is steadfast when Saul's wickedness darkens. When Saul's wickedness darkens. Beginning in chapter 22, verse 6, Saul's truly wicked heart begins to show. In this passage, we, in the passage we read before we began preaching, we ended on the kind of a suspenseful note. Like David's there in front of the priests and he's talking to Ahimelech and then there's this sort of throwaway comment that seems almost out of context. Doeg the Edomite is there and then we kind of move on with the story and, and you're wondering what is the point of this comment about Doeg the Edomite? Well, then in chapter 22, Doeg is back. He's left the priests and he's back in front of Saul just in time for a big meeting of Saul's royal cabinet. We learn that instead of choosing competent men, Saul has gathered a group of cronies from his own family. Uh, he stacked his court, and, and yet even his own creatures have lost confidence in his leadership. And so he gathers everybody together under the tamarisk tree. I guess that was sort of like the, the, the House of Representatives back in the day. You know, they hadn't built a building yet. And he gives them this speech and he harangues his most loyal and devoted servants for their supposed lack of loyalty and devotion. And it's at this moment that Doeg the Edomite is there, and he sees his chance. He's somebody that uh, probably doesn't have a lot of prospects. He's a foreigner. He's not a part of the family of Israel. And so he sees his chance. He actually has some valuable information. It, it Really, it's not that valuable if your objective is to find David. David's already gone. But Doeg says, hey... I can tattle on somebody. I'll tell you that the priests are the ones that helped David. The priests actually gave him some food and a sword, and they inquired of the Lord for him. And so it's at this point we see Saul's true nature begin to come out. Remember, all the way back in chapter 15, when the Lord had told Saul, I'm rejecting you from being king. You're, you and your family are done. And in chapter 15, it might have seemed like God was being a little bit harsh, like, yeah, Saul's not perfect, but he did have a great victory. Why, why is God being so harsh? And, and, and yet God had seen into Saul's heart. And now we're getting to see what Saul's heart looks like. Because here's what he does. Saul is so angry at these priests. He brings in Ahimelech the priest, and he sets him up before him, and he, he accuses him of treachery. And Ahimelech defends himself. He's totally innocent. He had no idea what any of this fighting was going on, and, and he says, I don't care, you're going to die. And so Saul turns to his, his uh, cronies, and he says, okay, it's time, kill the priests. And, and these guys, as loyal as they are to Saul, they know you don't do that. You don't kill God's priests. And so Saul fails to successfully execute the priests, but then there's Doeg, and he's there, and he wants to get in good with the new boss. And Doeg says, I'll do it, and he does. And not only does he kill Ahimelech, but 85 members of the priestly family, and he destroys the entire city of Nob, and he puts everything living to death. There's only one man who escapes, and it's a priest by the name of Abiathar. He runs to David, and uh, he finds safety in David's camp. And, and folks, even in this circumstance, it seems to me that there are Three ways in which we see the steadfastness of the Lord. Like when Saul's evil uh, darkens, when it shows what Saul is really like, we can see even now the steadfastness of the Lord. First of all, consider how this instance totally lays to rest 
any objection that we might have to God's choice of David over Saul. Like, if you thought back in chapter 15 that God was being a little bit harsh, now you can see what Saul is really like, and we see the righteousness of God in rejecting Saul. Second way that we see his steadfastness, notice his steadfastness with regard to the judgment of the house of Eli. Now, you're going to have to reach far back into this, and I know we're moving kind of quickly through this passage. But consider all the way back, if you've been here from the beginning of this series, look all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, in which Eli, who's the priest at that time, you you don't have to turn there, but Eli uh, is the priest, and during his entire time as priest, he's allowing his sons to victimize the children of Israel, and they're committing immorality, and they're stealing from God's people, and they're profaning the tabernacle. And so one day, here's what a prophet does. A prophet comes to Eli and he says, quote, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. In other words, decades before, like a long time before this event in 1 Samuel chapter 22, God had promised Eli, hey, your children, they're going to die young men. They're going to die violently by the sword. And I'm only going to save the life of one person, and he's going he's to be saved so that he can weep his eyes out at the loss and at the destruction and at the difficulty that they've faced as a, as a family. And then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 22, and that is exactly what happens. So what's the point? My point is that God's steadfastness is seen even in judgment. Like it might, it might not be pleasant to think about, but you need to know that the Lord promises to judge sin, and he's going to fulfill his promise. This is the sort of thing that we do. Here's what we do. We say to our kids, go to bed right now in a loud voice, right? Go to bed right now, or I'm going to spank you, (laughs) you know? Or we say it in as many words in more colorful language than that. But we know that we are way too tired to get up off the couch and discipline the child. We're bluffing. And so we use the raised voice or something like that or some kind of look. You know, every parent has that look. That's what we do. But, friends, God doesn't do that. He doesn't bluff. His word is true. His judgments are just and certain. If he says he's going to do something, he is going to do that thing. So let me just be as frank as possible. Everybody listen. One day, one day, Sinners, small and great, are going to stand before the throne of judgment, and many, many, many sinners who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and decided, I don't need him, and have lived in rebellion against the Lord of hosts, are going to be cast into the lake of fire and burn in hell, friends, an everlasting hell on the command of God himself. Like, God is going to do that. He's not going to stand by and say, well, I wish that didn't happen, but it has to happen. No, he's the one that's judging sin. He is patient. He is merciful. He provides a way of salvation. He gives us chance after chance after chance. But the day is going to come when his judgment is going to fall. And all these notions of how this guy grew up poor or that girl you know, wasn't loved by her parents or 
you know, they experience a betrayal and that's why they're so bad, all that stuff is going to be irrelevant. Because the judge is going to judge and everyone's going to see that he's righteous and just and true to his word, not only in salvation, but in judgment as well. So what I'm saying is that I stand up, and when I stand up here week after week, and I beg you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, I am not saying, hey, you're going to feel better if you let Christ into your life. Now, that may be true, but that's not my point. The point is, you are under judgment. You are, con- you are standing there condemned because of your rebellion against the Most High God, and you have one chance one chance to receive salvation and be rescued, and that's by calling out to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, Jesus, please forgive me. Please, I need your salvation. Would you rescue me? Only Jesus can save you from that condemnation, and that leads me to a third way in which we see God's steadfastness in the face of Saul's spectacular wickedness. Notice in the case of Abiathar, folks, how God's heart is to save a remnant. Even in the midst of judgment, he wants to rescue. Abiathar loses everything. There's only one place for him to go. He finds David, and and, and listen to what David says to him at the end of the chapter. He says, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. So friends, Abiathar and his entire house is under the judgment of God, but the safety he finds is with David. He finds safety with God's anointed king. And and so here's what I want to say. This is God's way. This is who God is. He is steadfast in his righteousness. He's steadfast in his judgment. He's steadfast in keeping his promises. He's steadfast, though, in in his commitment to rescuing sinners from the judgment that we deserve And rescuing that undeserving remnant so that in the midst of his judgment, his mercy can be seen by thousands and we can experience his love and his his goodness. In Abiathar's case, that was with David. But David is just a precursor and a predecessor of a greater king who's going to come. And, And it's like Jesus is looking at all of us and he's saying, with me, you'll be safe. Safe from judgment, safe from the powers of the enemy, safe from your sinful desires. Say, well, how do you know that? It's because, guys, he's proven over and over again that the Lord is steadfast. When you're desperate, he's steadfast. When you're in danger, when you need direction, when evil grows darker, the Lord is steadfast. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen this in your life? You say, well, I guess I believe that. Sure, sounds good. So let's make this really practical. I want you to think about three specific areas of your life. Think about your calendar. Think about your relationships. Think about your checking account, your finances. How do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? How do I relate to everybody else? Think about each of these three big areas of life and how they reflect not just what you say you believe, but what you actually believe. And as you think about your schedule your calendar, and your checking account, and your relationships with other people, ask yourself this, is there any evidence when I look at these three areas of my life that I really believe in the steadfast love of God? 
Like, is there anything about it? When I look at how I spend my time, does it show that my hope is not in this life, but in the fulfillment of God's promise in the life to come? When I look at the way that I invest in other people, does it show that I care most about what my loving father thinks of me or that I care most about what everybody else thinks of me? When I look at the way that I spend and save my money, does it show that I believe my God will supply every one of my needs or does it show that I feel like I have to control and supply my own needs? You see, it's those three areas in which the rubber meets the road and we see whether we're really confident in the steadfast love of God. But friends, here's here's what I want to tell you. He is steadfast. And when it comes to your calendar, you can put it in his hands. You can say, I'm going to spend my time doing what God wants me to do because I know the steadfast love of God is true for me. When it comes to your finances, you can say, I'm going to spend my money. I'm going to save my money the way that God wants me to. And I'm going to say no to the things that my flesh wants because I know that God is steadfast. When it comes to my relationships, I know that I'm going to invest in people the way that the scriptures tell me to invest in people because God is steadfast towards me. He loves me and I get my joy and my peace and my my comfort from that. And so I can invest in other people the way that God wants me to invest in them because of the steadfast goodness of God. Folks, he's steadfast no matter what. Whether you're in danger, whether you're desperate, when evil darkens, when you lack direction, he's steadfast. Would you pray with me now? Father, we, we just want to rest in who you are, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your reliability, your firmness, knowing that you are strong, you are smart, and you are good in all your ways. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would, would show us, would reveal to us like we're looking in a mirror, which areas of life. Do I need to give over to you and trust in your steadfast love? Lord, I pray that you would move right now as we respond to your word in song. And I pray that you would change our lives to be more conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.